We have a lot to cover today in our class as usual. We're not gonna get to everything. I've already made peace with that. So I've tried to put all the important information at the front. So that way, by the time we get to the end, it's not as important. Don't feel like you're missing too much. Uh, but we're continuing on our class with emotions. Last week, we briefly looked at two pitfalls in our society when it comes to dealing with our emotions. Emotionalism, right? Emotions are everything, it's my identity. And then stoicism, which had multiple definitions, as Ethan was pointing out a little bit. It's, it's nothing. Like, emotions are nothing at all. You got to crush them, control them, and we treat them as if they're unimportant. They're like a dog with rabies. So those are the two spectrums we can fall into. And then the third way of engaging our emotions, uh, a system of processing and working through our emotions, uh, was engaging our emotions, engaging our emotions. That's what we're going for. And the steps in order are identifying our emotions, right? We identify what we're feeling. We try to examine and get under the hood of what's going on. We then evaluate biblically those emotions, what's good, what's bad about it, and then we act. And of course, we're not going to do this perfectly, uh, but we, we seek then to work from this framework of evaluating our emotions, examining them carefully, identifying. And then after evaluating, we can either heighten the emotion or we can work to shut it down and starve it. In today's lesson, then, we're going to look at engaging our emotions, part two. First, in engaging in relational conflict. I think that's something we all need to <laughs> continually work at. How do we work through conflict? And then, of course, as we get closer to the end of our class, we'll look at nourishing healthy emotions. How can we do that, practically speaking? and then starving negative emotions. The bad ones, how do we eliminate them? So this is what we're going to look at here this morning. Any questions before we begin? All right. We'll look then at engaging in relational conflict. We've talked a lot about, I think, uh, about how our emotions are meant to connect us relationally to one another. We've, we've spent a great deal of time about that. Uh, emotions are meant to connect us to one another, help us to grow in relationships. But we also realize that emotions can divide us from other people around us, right? You're ever angry with a person, what's happening? That emotion is maybe coming in between you. It can. And we see this all too often um, in many people's experience at one point or another, and especially in marriage. So for example, we don't have any Rogers or Jeans in this church, so I'm going to make, make up this example here. Say Roger and Jean are running late to church again, okay? Roger and Jean, right? They drive, and silence fills the air. There's just this icy, cold silence between them. Uh, there's no radio on or conversation, just dead silence. And Roger is just focused on the road with determination. You know, he's quickly passing cars left and right like a maniac. And of course, what's Jean doing, right? What's, what's Jean doing in the car? She's like stepping on that invisible brake pedal, right? She's freaking out. She's holding on. And she's like, you know, Roger, slow down before you kill someone. And then what does he say? He shoots back something like, well, if you didn't make us late, I wouldn't have to drive like this, right? And you kind of see this heated conflict going back and forth. Um, that often happens between couples. And so there's plenty of emotion in the air as there's this conflict going on between both of them. And we find that in such situations, our emotions don't help us to connect, but it really is a catalyst to divide us and push us apart. And so what do we do when we hit such a wall in our relationships to one 
another. And so the book that we're, we're teaching through offers us a helpful script for relating. It often serves relationships best when emotions have a clearly defined role to play. Um, so we want our emotions to play the correct part, kind of like, like an order of procession, like a kind of a, a wedding ceremony when everyone knows their part, when they're supposed to step forward and, and do their thing. Each emotion has a purpose, place, and time to kind of step to the front. And so we, we kind of need a script for relating our emotions to the other. And so this isn't going to feel natural for a lot of people, but it's something that we all try to work toward. I think a lot of people are used to just some emotions, like pushing their way all the way to the front, right? Um, and one emotion dominates all the other emotions completely, and it becomes a jumbled mess. And so then connecting becomes really hard or impossible. But as we follow a script for relating our emotions to one another, especially in heated situations, we can enrich our relationship rather than use those emotions for ammunition. So, so what is this script then for relating in such heated tensions or moments? Here's, here's the gist of it here. Three questions or three statements. This is what it was like for me. What was it like for you? So this is what it was like for you, summarizing it. And am I hearing you right? And then how can we do this differently? And, and then possibly this must stop or this must change. So these are the three phases for relating in heated moments that we want to walk through. And we'll take a, a, uh, much of the time to do this. Looking at this first part. This is what it was like for me. What was it like for you? In heated moments, this is probably one of the hardest things to say because anger is often there in, in our emotions and I, and I think we, we're all aware of how badly things go when we let anger speak first. Like it wants to jump to the front of the line. Uh, anger tends to make assumptions of the other person. It launches accusations. And then that, that of course, leads to defensiveness and counterattacks from the other person. And so in such moments, we need to recognize that anger needs to be kept from the front of the line. We need to pull back on that because it, it tends to displace emotions that help us to connect, like compassion, concern, and patience. So coming back to the first step, what we're essentially calling for here is, is vulnerability. Vulnerability. Vulnerability is not something we are comfortable with at all in our society. It's much, it feels safer to be angry or defensive. Um, but vulnerability is something that we need to do as we extend an olive branch of love and care to the other person rather than leading the conversation with accusations. So as we go back to Roger and Jean, right, our make-believe story, uh, let's, let's say Roger initiated the conversation with vulnerability instead of just attacking with anger. He said, hey, when we left the house, you know, I felt like you were really angry at me, Jean. And, and I really didn't want to be criticized. I wanted you to know I was upset about our being late, and so I was angry. And I didn't know what to say, and so I just retreated and got really quiet. I'm sorry, and I don't want there to be icy silence between us. I want us, I want us to work through this and to be close again. Can we talk about it? Now, if Roger could say this with, like, sincerity and not sarcasm, um, that's, 
that would be great. That's, that's the first step. This is what it was like for me, honestly and sincerely, without attacking. What was it like for you? Now, to be vulnerable here comes with some risk, right? Because maybe we've done this before, and how does it tend to happen when we're vulnerable with the other person? They, they can take that opportunity, and they can actually stick you, right? They can stick you with it, right? Uh, they can come back at you with sarcasm, and it doesn't always necessarily help. So Jean could take this vulnerable moment and wound Roger further. She could say, well, if you weren't so childish, then we wouldn't have these arguments, right? And then it, it hurts, right? You're trying to be vulnerable. You're trying to express, and they can just stick it to you. But by being vulnerable, we're taking a major step towards steering the conversation away from the blame game toward true harmony and unity. And by acting with this humility, then, we're taking a major step towards steering the conversation towards the good of the relationship instead of our own being right. So we need to then, in this first step, become vulnerable, lay down our weapons, and express a real desire to not only be understood, but to understand the other. And it takes risk. Now, I guess I should have said this beforehand. This is, this is just being applied generically across all relationships. This is not meant to be applied to, to abusive relationships. Okay, so the script we're going through is not meant for abusive relationships. I just wanted to say that. So if there's something that's like highly abusive, don't take this script. But for generic relationships across the board, this is what I'm talking about here. Um, so if you have questions about that, talk with me afterwards. So this is the first part. What was it like for me? And then, of course, what was it like for you? Okay, it's not just about me getting my viewpoint across, but it's genuinely seeking interest in the other person's perspective. It is to give empathy to the other. Listening with an eagerness to understand and care is as important as initiating with vulnerability. And so in the same way that empathy is essential for, for loving conflict resolution, it is also an essential element of the gospel. I think this is seen as the author of Hebrews writes that Jesus had to be made like his brother in every respect so that he could become a merciful high priest. Jesus had to be made like us, understand us to be our high priest. And again, Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so as Jesus becomes like us, like man, we can say that empathy is an expression of the incarnation. It's to be like Jesus. It's a way of saying, I want to know what this situation was like for you, rather than just imagining what your situation would be like for me. And, and as we think on this, God didn't have to walk around in our world. He didn't. But he chose to come incarnate, to, to walk in our shoes, to understand us, our weaknesses, our struggles, all of them. And so the best kind of love then, as we emulate Jesus, desires to walk around in the shoes of others around us too. And that's why this step is so important, to empathize at the heart level with the other person and seeking to truly understand where they're coming from. Now, I think it's an important note to talk about what empathy is and what it isn't. 
Um, I think sometimes we think of empathy as imagining ourselves in the same position as someone else. And that's not a bad start to begin. But empathy is more so trying to understand what it is like for the person we're talking to in that situation, given their, their history and their background. Not my history and background, their history and their background. To have empathy is to understand from their point of view, considering all that they've gone through. And I think sometimes unintentionally we read ourselves into the other person's situation, right? And we assume it's a one-for-one correlation. Like we say, oh, I went through that, so I understand you. And that's not empathy. We may have gone through a similar situation, but there are multiple factors that, that may not make it the same at all. And you'll find that assuming will get you into trouble more often than not. So it's important for us then not to read our own experience and situation as being the same for others. You can use it as a starting block, but then explore. What was it like for this person? Truly ask that question, right? Um, what was it like for you? How did that make you feel? Don't assume that you necessarily know the answer right away. And it's in this way that we can begin to meaningfully connect with the other person. So we need to make sure then that we try to truly understand what it was like for the other person when we ask this question. And we don't do it with sarcasm, okay? I think sometimes when we do this, we can say, uh, you know, going back to Roger and Gene, uh, Gene, you were being really, really annoying, and I hated that. What was it like for you? Okay, that's not helpful at all. We need to get below, that's just an attack. You're just attacking the other person. So I felt like I was really annoyed and I hate you. You know, like that's childish and immature. Uh, we need to go beyond that. We can use this script for attacking the other person. And so we need to be sincere, like sincere. This is truly what it was like, man. I'm trying to extend an olive branch, that type of orientation. And then extending, allowing them to tell the, you what it was like for you. So this is what it was like for me. What was it like for you? And then... Okay, this is, this is the next step. So this is what it was like for you. Am I hearing you right? This is the part where we try to restate to the person that we've actually understood what they've said to us. And this is hard for us to do because in, in heightened emotional situations, we want to be heard. We want the other person to know what we're feeling, our point of view. But this, this script is, is pulling us back from that. And in deferential love, we're saying, what was it like for you? Let me make sure I'm understanding where you're coming from. Is this, is this truly your experience here? And again, this is crucial to Christ-like love and reflects Jesus' attitude toward us. And so instead of appealing to omniscience, God opened his ear toward us in the flesh so that, again, we would not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So as basic as the step might seem, it is really helpful to simply restate the other person's perspective in the most genuine way possible. And if you can do that effectively, it can de-escalate de that conflict unimaginably quickly. Like, if the, if the other person feels like you get them and that you understand, it's amazing what that can do for your relationship. And I, I, and I think it's important here to also say um, that when you're trying to summarize what the other person is feeling or thinking, you're not necessarily endorsing it, okay? You're not saying, I approve and I agree with you. 
understanding is not evaluating, okay? Sometimes we think we can't say, well, I can't say I understand them because I don't agree with them. Well, we can try to understand where they're coming from, yet disagree with them. And so if you feel like it's important for you to make that distinction, you know, clear, you can say something like, if that's how you heard what I said, right? If that's how you heard what I said, then I completely understand why you said what you did, and, and I don't want you to feel that way. And I'm committed to doing what I can. I care that you feel hurt. So again, it's, it's not necessarily agreeing. Like, they heard you say one thing, and you're saying, if, if, if I heard you, if, that, if that's what you heard, then I get why you feel the way that you do. So we can clear up those miscommunications in that way. Understanding and caring about the other person's experience is not the same thing as agreeing with it. So sometimes that, that would keep me from trying to understand my wife because I'm like, you're just wrong. I, I'm not even going to make an attempt at understanding because it's just so wrong and it would get in the way and it would hurt my relationship. But when we begin to understand and hear them correctly, uh, then we can work towards resolution. And of course, this requires humility and patience. So again, so this is what it was like for you, right? Conflict resolution. And then it's important for you to say, am I hearing you right after that? This is what I'm hearing you say, am I hearing you right? And this phrase here is meant to communicate that I care more about what's going on with you than winning a fight. Now at the heart of it, at least for me, it's more about winning the fight than caring about the relationship. And so this, we need to reprioritize. It's not about winning the fight. It's about caring for the other person genuinely. And if the other person here doesn't think that they're hearing you right, and guess what? Often the case is, they're not, you, you know, you're not hearing them right. You're going to go through this whole cycle again until you try to get to the point where you actually can understand them and relate to them correctly. So asking this question then is often the difference between suspicious disconnection and building a trusting relationship. And so when I feel I can trust someone because he is handling my perspective with care, our defenses come down, right? If someone gets us and understands us, we're a lot more prone to listen to what they have to say, right? That's just the natural way. They're entering into my world. They get me. And then because of that, the other is often willing to see things from the other's perspective. And so again, we take on the example of Jesus who entered into our world to understand us experientially and to, and to help us to trust him. And because he's inhabited our world, so we need to fall in the footsteps of caring people by entering into others around us. A any questions up to this point here? The, these first two points? Where's my phone? Make sure I keep on time here since that clock is wrong. All right, good. We're doing fine. All right. Third point here. How can we do this differently? And possibly this must change. After hearing them and you guys agreeing that, you know, there's understanding between the two of you, the third question is how can we do this differently? Um, again, as we, as we return to the example of Roger and Jean, you know, suppose Roger and Jean work to hear and connect with one another. Jean hears Roger's frustration over running late, and she owns her contribution to the problem. 
Roger hears how his impatience and aggressive driving not only frustrated Jane, but made her feel like if, if, if Roger didn't care at all about her. So both acknowledge their sins, repent, ask for forgiveness in a perfect world, right? That's, that's what would happen. But love also requires them to what? Look ahead, plan ahead, strategically think ahead for such situations. And of course, no matter what they decide, there are no absolute guarantees. And in moments when emotions are running high, you know, maybe, maybe they repeat the exact same cycle. But it's important for them to, to try to think ahead, to imagine future scenarios and what they might be able to do to cut that off at the head so that this conflict doesn't happen again. So we strategically plan then for the next time such a conflict happens. What commitments do Roger and Jean need to make for such a scenario so that they don't have to fall into the same cycle of fighting over and over and over and over again? Well, maybe Roger will make the commitment to not deal with his anger or frustration by retreating into icy cold silence or or driving like a madman, right? (laughs) Maybe he makes that commitment there. Or maybe Jean will try to be more aware of the time so that they are not late in the future. But both of them, right, both, not just one or the other, both of them will take steps to improve the situation for next time and ask God to help them in this endeavor. And so in in engaging these emotional conflicts, relationships, following this script, keeping anger at bay will help us to communicate with each other. Now, one word on nonverbal communication for, for this. Um, most communication conflicts, when we're engaging in, in this type of conflict, has to do with nonverbal communication. Most communication conflict has to do with the nonverbal communication. Like, so for instance, communication experts say that 70 to 93% of all communication is nonverbal, okay? 70 to 93% of what you communicate to another person is nonverbal. If that's true, it's really important then to pay attention to our nonverbal communication, right? Whether it's facial expressions, body position, your arms crossed or down or disinterested, eyes rolling, tone of voice. All of that is communicating more than your actual words itself. And so often the case is like, well, I didn't say that. It's how you said it. It's not what you said. It's how you said it. And that is like the model for my wife in year one of marriage. She said, Josh, it's not what you said. It's how you said it. And she would say that to me over and over and over and over again. And I'm like, I just didn't give any credit to nonverbal communication, and I should have. And so we need to then work on matching the words that we speak with the proper facial expressions, right? Like, am I saying it with the right facial expressions of what I'm trying to communicate? Am I saying it with the right tone? And this will also help us in our relational conflict. When we're going through these, these three steps here, we need to watch our nonverbal communication. Eye-rolling, okay? Eye-rolling is a big one. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're saying that. That's so dumb. Like, they can pick up on that. The people you're talking with are not stupid. They read it intuitively. We all do. And so we have to be very careful of it. So, so two points can guide us here. First, be conscious and intentional with your tone and face while communicating. Be very conscious and intentional of it. Go out of your way 
to maintain a peaceable tone. Not an irritated one, not a frustrated one, not an angry one, but watch your tone. It communicates so much. And your facial expressions, eye rolling, heavy sighs, folded arms, turning your body away from the other person. So try to connect with your tone of voice, your body posture, and, and keep an open heart and open posture toward them. Relax your face and, and be overly aware of it, especially in heated moments. And, and if you're about to have like a really difficult conversation and you know it's coming, it might be good to practice in front of a mirror too, okay? That, that might help you. So this is the first, first point for us. And the second, try not to be defensive about comments on your nonverbal gestures. I find that they're often not helpful at all. Truth is, we're often not aware at all of what we're doing with our faces, posture, or tone of voice. And if someone con- comments on it, it's worth exploring and considering what other people see, what other people hear. And, and so thank the person who points it out to you. They say, you know, they bring it up, your nonverbal, just say, thank you for pointing that out. You know, I'm sorry. I, you know, that wasn't my intention. I will try to work on that, right? Just thank them. And, and, then, and then if you're really unsure, just ask your, your spouse or someone close to you, a friend, and say, hey, you know, it was, this was brought, do I do this often? And, and they, they'll, they'll confirm yes or no, right? And then they can maybe even give you tips on how you can improve that. So if, if the other person you're speaking with is expressing nonverbal communication that's unhelpful or is different from what he or she is communicating, and then just, just point out to them, like, hey, I, I hear you saying one thing, but your nonverbal communication is expressing, like, irritation or, like, hyperjudgment on me right now. Or, you know, just, just let them know that their tone of voice or their body posture communicates something different from what they're saying. And ask gently and kindly and for clarification so that we can continue to work on connecting rather than letting heated emotions get in the way of our communication. Any, any comments or, or questions on this point? Yeah, which, which part as insincere? Sure. And I'm not saying you can't say you're frustrated, but you can't, don't, don't allow that to come across as attacking. You say, you know, I am frustrated, and I am. Being honest about your emotions is something we need to do. But don't allow those feelings to come to the front of the line in a way of attacking the other person and taking it out. There's a difference between feeling it and allowing that to, to drive you to attack the other person. And that's what normally happens. So it's fine. Like, like again, in the example, Roger says, you know, I felt angry and I felt frustrated. Like, that's, we need to be honest about what we're feeling. So be honest. Be sincere about that. Just don't attack the other person. <laughs> yeah. You can feel, we can all feel feelings. We just can't act on them, right, all the time. And that's what we're, what we're going for here. All right. We'll continue on here. So this is engaging in relational conflict. We do our best to follow this script. Maybe you have your own system. But I found this so helpful because I don't think my wife and I really learned this till like year two or three of marriage. And I'm like, where was this book back then? Like this would have helped us work through all of these things. And this is typically what we do and not even know it. We like walk through all of these steps now. Before I even read this book, I'm like, my goodness, this is, this is what I needed. And so in, whenever you're engaging in relational conflict, think through a script. Think through what your emotions are communicating in that moment. Make sure anger and frustration doesn't take control of the situation and lead to personal attacks. But then, by God's grace, we can work on this more and more.
Okay. We'll move on then from engaging in relational conflict to nourishing healthy emotions. Nourishing healthy emotions. All right. We've been learning that what we love shapes how we feel, right? What we love shapes how we feel. And so what we need to work on directly is not how we feel in the moment or our emotions, but what we love. We need to focus on feeding our hearts the right loves and desires. And this is something, of course, that requires the help of the Holy Spirit, but it is something that we vigorously pursue. And so as we seek to nourish healthy emotions, all we're trying to do is is to nourish, deepen our love for Christ. We want to deepen our our trust and our knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. And in this, we will grow godly feelings, both negative and positive feelings, as we love God all the more rightly and properly. So what are some ways that we can do this? I'm going to start with the basic, okay, the obvious. We're going to start with consuming the word, okay? We need a healthy diet of God's word each and every day. And I need to turn my phone off. That would help. All right, good. No one's not coming in. Sorry about that. So reading the Bible is sounds really basic. And, and maybe some of you get a sinking feeling because, like, this is an overly simplified answer to a very complex topic. Or it could actually lead to you feeling condemned and guilt-inducing as if I'm suggesting just read your Bible and your emotions will work out in the end. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to convey that at all. We instead start with consuming the Word Um, as one way to nourish our bodies, to take care of our bodies. To take care of our bodies requires multiple things that we do, right? We need to sleep right. We need to eat right. We need to exercise. To take care of our spiritual souls, we need to do the proper thing of eating the Word of God, right? Consuming it. This is just one step of many to taking care of our souls. And so we consume God's Word, for man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth. So, as we do this, it will bring us into closer relationship with God who cares about us and it will help steer our emotions in the right direction. So consume the word, begin with that. Another healthy one that we can go to is just go outside. A practical thing we can do for our emotions is to go outside. And this is especially helpful as our age is more and more digital. Um, Minnesota can sometimes make this very difficult for us to do when it's freezing out. Uh, but with the weather lately, you can do this, right? And, and I admit that 10 minutes outside, outside isn't going to necessarily radically alter your mood or your feelings. But as it is with reading the Bible, it's hard to overstate the value of regularly reminding your body and soul that you live in a larger story than, than just your messy house or your job or the four walls of your office. And so we can take a walk and let nature, what we see, what we feel, what we touch, what we see, to remind us of the God who created all the glorious things that we encounter and experience. And so just because a daily walk won't necessarily kick your depression or help your contentment, it's one of the most practical things we can do to steer our hearts closer to God in the right direction. There's then, of course, participating in corporate worship together as believers. Gathering as believers has the power to refresh our hearts in worship. 
and the service has the potential to revive godly emotions as well. Um, some have said corporate worship has been called the oasis for our parched souls under the beating sun of life, and this holds true for our emotions as well. And so as we, as we gather together as believers, it has the power to shape our emotions in several positive ways. We can be encouraged by one another as we, as we talk, as we interact, as we care for each other with our words. As we see others worshiping and engaging, we, we can be encouraged by them. And so our emotions help us, uh, are helped by being encouraged through the singing of the truth that we sing every Sunday, through the preaching of the word, through the prayers that are prayed, through the Lord's Supper that we partake in each and every Sunday. All of this needs to be held out to our emotions to help us to be stabilized. Next, we can cultivate good negative emotions. As we seek to nourish healthy emotions, we want to cultivate good negative emotions. It's interesting that the book of the Bible named after an emotion is not joy, but it's lamentations, right? And as counterintuitive as it sounds, there are ways in which you should feel bad more strongly than you do. And again, I'm not saying that you should seek out sadness or grief just for the sake of doing so. But even as we've been covering in the past weeks, it's likely that many Christians need to pour time and effort into growing in godly guilt, grief, and dismay. Uh, because what do we do? We often short-circuit these negative emotions. We crush our negative emotions. We deny them. We, we escape from them rather than letting them do their good work in driving us to God. And so what does it look like then to cultivate good negative emotions? Uh, one of the best ways to do this is first learning to, um, learning to lament. Lament. A lament is an honest, impassioned expression of sorrow, frustration, or confusion. Lament names a loss or injustice and the impact that it has had. And so again, it's no accident that the most common type of psalm in the Bible is what? It's, it's lament. Lament psalms are the most common in the Bible. And so laments honor God in two ways. First, they stand with God and grieve the brokenness of the world as he does. For we recognize that God hates sin and suffering. And he will one day eradicate both. And so laments yearn for that day. They, and it calls for that coming of that day when God will do away with all of it. And so this orientation then drives us to see the world as God does as we lament the brokenness of it all. But then second, laments help us to trust God with something we care about. When we love passionately and lose something of great value that God's given us, whether it's a person or something else we've lost, to stay present with the pain of loss as laments do is in a strange way acknowledging God's goodness and giving us the gift in the first place. And so the biblical pattern then is not just to, to shrug off the loss and just move on, right? That's not the pattern. The pattern is we grieve. We grieve with honest heartache the wrongness of death and destruction of God's beautiful creation and especially his children. And so if you, if you love others, as, as Christ calls you to do, then you will also truly lament when evil of various kinds befall them. 
So laments then are one way that we can cultivate good negative emotions. But then there is also the good negative emotion of guilt that can be good at times as well. To experience in your gut, right, that you've done something wrong and that your only hope is to turn around and walk in the opposite direction is incredibly healthy and right and valuable. And while guilt can easily misfire and and lead to self-pity or self-condemnation, the purpose of guilt is really to turn us to God, right, who offers forgiveness. And so we're going to look more at guilt next week. But for now, good guilt should be freeing. It calls us to stop defending our wrong choices and to weep and to repent instead. It helps us to feel our need to change when confronted by sin and and leads us to draw near to God and his mercies. And so good guilt leads to gospel repentance and joy. But then there is also doubt. Doubt which can also be a good negative emotion at times as well. And I think sometimes that can be misunderstood here. This could be misunderstood because the dangers of doubts are very real. And all too often, doubt can become um, self-centered faithlessness. And I'm not encouraging that, okay? But there are good doubts that we see in the Bible. We hear the God engaging doubt in the voices of Habakkuk, in the voice of Job, in the voice of Psalm 73, and the father of the demon-afflicted boy in Mark 9, 14 through 29, who says, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? There is doubt all over the scriptures. And all express deep confusion about the awful situation around them, precisely because they trust in God's character. Okay? That's it right there. And so this means that we can still be faithful and say to God, I know you are good, and that you do not delight in evil. So how come the wicked seem to be doing just fine while the vulnerable people that I care about are being destroyed all around me? To bring these kinds of doubts to God isn't looking for a reason to question his reality or character. It's actually quite the opposite. To engage in godly doubt means bringing him your questions about the gap that he reveals himself to be He reveals himself to be perfectly good and just on the one hand. And then on the other hand, he allows terrible evil to befall people he's promised to protect and care for. And so there is a godly doubt too. So we need to engage then in good negative emotions, using them correctly. And that's what we're going for. And and I think we get this, but just like everything else in life, we want to take back what God created as good and use it appropriately And so seeing negative emotions as evil is wrong. We want to cultivate good negative emotions as such as sadness, doubt, anguish, uh, all of these things correctly. Um, any, Any questions on these four points here for nourishing healthy emotions? We're going to talk about more of these negative emotions next week, so we'll we'll deep dive there. Um, But for now, any questions on nourishing healthy emotions? All right. Then, with the final moments we have together, starving unhealthy emotions. And I'm just going to, I'm going to go through these very quickly. Um, We wish, again, that negative emotions were like old Western films, where they, like, wore white hats for the good guys, black hats for the bad guys. But that's just not how it is at all, right? Our world is mixed. 
And so we can't give a blanket rejection to just any emotion. But there are four things that we can say no to with every negative or with all of our emotions. And the first is, I am my emotions. I am my emotions. We, we sometimes get confused that my emotions, what I feel, is me. And we need to distance ourselves from that and, and realize we are so much more than just our emotions. And as David does over and over again, bring our emotions to God. And so there's a radical difference in crying to oneself and bringing your cries to God. One helps you connect to God. The other is just self-pity and doesn't accomplish anything. So we bring our cries to God um, and not identify only with our emotions as this is me. Um, second, there is the unhealthy idea of I need to act right now in this heated moment. Um, emotions yank us by the collar. They pressure us to act fast. So when we're feeling good, happy, and unstoppable, what do we do? We overcommit. We overpromise, and we don't fulfill our promises. When we're feeling angry, uh, we immediately go into launching attacks on the other person. When we're feeling anxious and fearful, we run to negative coping mechanisms. So unhealthy emotions tend to make us want to act now, immediately. And we have to be careful in such moments to not give in to that impulse, but to pull back and think about that. Third, uh, I shouldn't be feeling this right now. Um, and we just need to continually work to bring our emotions in line with our other emotions rather than just shutting it down, right? We need to explore. We need to work through it as we've been talking about. And then finally, this is all or nothing, right? Black and, right, uh, black and white. And emotions often see, help us to see colors only in black and white. We need to pull back from that. Um, if someone's angry at you, they hate me, right? They absolutely hate me. Uh, because if you're angry at me, you hate me. That's just how it is. That's my truth. And we need to pull back from these, these black and white views and, and nuance them. They're angry at me because maybe they do love me. Um, and, and trying to see the opposite side of, of the spectrum. Um, I had a lot more here. We can talk more later. But we're going to go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Um, and again, we'll pray that God would bless our time together and help us cultivate um, our emotions in a godly way. Father, thank you again for this time. Would you bless our time together as we worship you? May we worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and with all of our emotions engaged, Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to lift them up to you in, in all the right ways. May we sing with joy. May we grieve over our sadness, and we just ask, Lord, that you'd help us to have empathy and compassion for those who are hurting around us, and may we continue to, to reach out in love even as you have loved us, Jesus. So use us today in this service to be a blessing to the body of Christ. And may your name be glorified. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.